You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. In sport, there is real hardcore science that is shining light on areas of human performance and guiding us to a better understanding of athlete development and ultimately to new heights of achievement. But the science is one thing, knowing how to utilize it in the real world of athlete and player development and competition, well, that's a different thing. This requires a deep understanding of both the science and the ebb and flow of the sport performance world and that is an art. It requires a touch and feel that only a very few people have. But like performance itself, it's out there and it's up for grabs for those who are open-minded enough to seek it out and determined enough to master the skill set. And that's exactly what this is all about. To learn and to get a better understanding of all that goes into extraordinary athletic performance. Welcome to episode number two of our three-part Looking Back series. Last week in episode one, we looked back to one of my all-time favorite conversations with Joan Ryan, author of her incredible book, Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. Well, this week we're looking way back to 2016 and our fantastic conversation with investigative reporter and author David Epstein as we not only discuss his New York Times number one bestseller and crush must-read book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance, we also talk about all of his adventures and stories as he collected his research and tracked down all of the content for this blockbuster book. Get your pen and paper ready, because if you're involved in sport at any capacity, there is so much to learn. Here's our conversation with David Epstein as we discuss his book, the sports gene. We're talking with David Epstein, investigative reporter and author of The Sports Gene. The website is thesportsgene.com. You can check it out and also order the book there. Uh, fascinating read. Thanks for having me. Well, the book's been out for a while now, and I've been waiting and waiting for this conversation because uh, it was a fascinating read for me. I actually read it on my way over to do uh, an assignment for Major League Baseball in Europe, and boy, it sang true for me, most certainly. How about we start with this? What was sort of the mindset that led you down the road to do this book, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletes? Athletic performance is sort of the tagline. Well, I can point to kind of a couple things um, that that came out of my own athletic career that really drove me to this. And the, the first was I grew up in an area with a lot of Jamaican immigrants, and it uh, we had these great track teams. You know, we didn't win our lose our conference for 24 straight years. <laughs> and when I was a teenager and sort of flipped open an atlas and saw that Jamaica is an island of two and a half million people, you know, I sort of started to think, well, what's going on over there that's producing all these great runners? And then I went on to run in college. Now I'm running against Kenyan guys and meeting some of them and realizing they're all from the same one town um, in, like, the middle of nowhere in Kenya. And, again, I'm wondering what's going on there. At the same time, I'm in a training group, training with five guys, stride for stride, day after day, same eating, living together, and yet we're getting more different, not more the same. And so I just started to have these questions. You know, that combined with things like watching on TV, a softball pitcher able to strike out some of the best Major League Baseball hitters, 
I just started to sort of accumulate in my head this list of questions about either what I had done or what I had seen in sports. And so finally when I, you know, it's like the dirty secret of this book. It's like 15 of my own deepest questions about athleticism. I like it. We're talking with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. Hey, the website is uh, thesportsgene.com. Of course, your blog is there and some other great information. And uh, as you talk about your athletic career, you ran uh, varsity track for Columbia. You're an 800-meter man. That's what we call glutton for punishment and pain and agony. It's one of the toughest, toughest events out there, no question about it. That's yeah, and that's what we who run it call. Um, you were slightly too slow to make it in Division One as a 400 meter runner. So if you want to, if you want to play, this is what you got to do. Right? Okay. Well, yeah, I like that mindset for sure. Well, hey, let's talk about the book. You mentioned it there about uh, Jenny Finch pitching to the major league guys, and early in the book, it's a really cool uh, section of the book. You have beat by an underhand girl talking about Pujols, Cameron Piazza, Bonds, and all these great hitters who couldn't touch a pitch by Jenny Finch, and I thought this was a, a real interesting way to introduce the idea of sort of maybe specialization and, and environment. Yeah, and, and because I thought, you know, when I first saw that on television, when Jenny, who was at the time one of the best softball pitchers in the world, had this show where she would go around uh, to different teams you know, every week and, and face some of their hitters, and none of them could touch her. And I was like, well, how is that possible? So I immediately calculated the transit time of the ball because she's throwing like 62, 63 from a 43-foot mound. But that's actually a longer time to get to the hitter than what they're used to facing at the major league level. So I'm thinking, well, if their reflexes are fast enough to hit 100-mile-per-hour fastballs, what's going on here? And the ball's bigger, too. You know, and obviously those guys felt the same way. Uh, but it turns out that that's, that human reaction time isn't even fast enough to do what's asked of major league hitters. The only way they can do it is by gauging, you know, movements of the torso, rotation of the pitcher's shoulder, flicker of the ball, which is the flashing pattern the seams make right when it's out of the hand, to basically predict what's coming in the future, because otherwise it's too slow. Like that advice to keep your eye on the ball, nonsense, can't do it. Our, our eyes don't track fast enough to track something moving that fast. You could close your eyes once the ball's halfway and it wouldn't make a difference. So it's really only by this learned ability to interpret body movements that allow you not to rely on reaction speed that, that baseball players are able to do what they can't, what they do. And when they're faced with an unfamiliar pitching motion, unfamiliar spin of the ball, unfamiliar shoulder rotation, they're stripped of that, that learned skill that allows them to do what they do. Yeah, and that's fascinating. We're talking with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. You know, David, and that led you right into what I thought was an interesting look at some of the science out there by Janet Starks and Bruce Abernathy, talking about, like, the occlusion test, anticipation skills. And, you know, the one thing that I really liked was the idea of um, um, some of the work that Abernathy had done on the volleyball players and, and – uh, sorry, Janet Starks did on the volleyball players, looking at you know just those little flashcards and just their ability to anticipate what was going on in the court in this flash of a picture. And I guess that goes back to this whole idea of experience being a real important part of the success in sport. Absolutely. I mean, that, that study you're talking about was where Janet Starks was using pictures of volleyball scenarios and showing them to players for a really short time to figure out could they tell if the ball is in the picture or not, if they're only flashed the picture fast enough to not even see the ball? Like, what information can they glean? And the, one of the best players in the world, she got her down to flashing the picture for only 16 milliseconds, uh, and, and the woman could tell whether the ball was in the frame or not just from sort of the arrangements of colors. I, I, I saw that. Uh, I tried that, and it, like, literally looked like somebody just flicked a flashlight in my face. Uh, I, I could see nothing. Right. You know, but through having exposed yourself to game situations over and over and over, they've learned how to unconsciously basically quickly interpret um, 
uh, these signals, you know, and that's, that's like what quarterbacks mean when they talk about the game slowing down, right? Obviously, the game is not slowing down. It's that they're seeing what's going to happen before it happens because they're judging the arrangements of players in relation to one another that allows them to make meaning of, of the parts in the whole, you know. And, and we all do this, this what, what's called chunking, grouping things into meaningful phrases in things in which we're expert. Like if I gave you 20 random English words in some chaotic order, you'd probably not be able to repeat them back to me. But if I give you a 20-word sentence, you might be able to repeat it back to me because you've learned unifying relationships that give those words meaning uh, in context with one another, and that, that helps you remember and interpret and even guess what's coming next. Sure, and I guess that goes right back to the idea of what happened with the Major League hitters with Jenny Finch, right? It was an entirely sort of alien environment to them, and they just couldn't put it together because it was unfamiliar. Exactly, exactly. And it parallels exactly what's, what's been seen in chess masters, where this has been studied for a long time. Back in the, like the 40s, chess masters were given boards and uh, players of different ability levels, and the grandmasters could recreate an entire board after seeing it for only three seconds. And so for decades, it was assumed that they just you know, were smarter or had better memories, basically. And then the study was repeated, but this time, when you gave them uh, boards that didn't have meaningful game arrangements... They couldn't do it anymore. They were just like novices. So it turned out it was just that they had learned all these chunks, these groups of pieces that, that cue them into what's really going on in the board and, and, and draws a relationship between all the pieces. We're talking with David Epstein, investigative reporter. He writes on a number of topics, including sports medicine, Olympics, sports science. And uh, um, it's been an interesting uh, trek sort of reading through this book. And you got a chance to travel around the world and, as you mentioned, answer your 15 questions, which is a fascinating experience for sure. And as we talk about the idea of, of learning and experience, you know, David, there's an interesting sort of well, I don't want to say it's an argument out there, but there's a sort of a conflict of opinion when it comes to, you know, the idea of practice, and you allude to it in your book, the idea of deliberate practice and this whole idea that Anders Ericsson, you know, the 10,000-hour rule and this process of human development, and then the other side where, you know, we have uh, researchers in the UK going, okay, deliberate practice is only a small part of the picture. I think this is a really interesting time in sports performance because we're kind of getting through this minutia of information, and we're coming out on the other side with a better understanding of what it's really all about. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that 100% because I think there's been this desire to have like a real reductionist approach. I mean, you can find it everywhere you turn, whether it's looking for 10,000-hour uh, rules or pitting nature against nurture and genes against practice. You know, I, I, I think you're right. I think we're starting to get through that to, to look sort of at the real complexity and figure out what things matter for performance and what things we can do something about. Um, and I hope I contributed that to that conversation a little bit. No, you certainly did. And for anybody who's got a child in sports, if you're a fan of sports or if you're involved in sports, um, you know, this is, this is a crush must read, by the way. And it'll be going up on our website for sure as a crush must read. It's called The Sports Gene, the Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. We're talking with the author, David Epstein. Well, let's go to this. You know, because one of the things that really comes through in the book, David, is the fact that, hmm, you know what? People gravitate towards things they're good in. And there might be actual, you know, this idea of nature versus nurture. It's a beautiful combination of these things now. But you start with nature, and then maybe you go towards an area where you could be nurtured. And I really like the uh, the conversation on Major League Baseball players and vision with Dr. Rosenbaum and Dr. Laby. Of course, that's sort of my world now, being involved in Major League Baseball forever. But I thought this was fascinating when you just simply sort of hone down on the idea of visual and visual acuity and visual performance and how, you know, these, these baseball players are typically above average when it comes to that, you know, sort of genetic trait. 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting thing. And actually, if you look deeply into the studies, kids' uh, visual acuity just being sort of one of the raw measures of vision that's not, you know, you can change visual acuity with things like glasses, but your maximum is sort of set by the density of photoreceptors in your eye. It's like the megapixel rating of a camera. You know, you can't go beyond that certain maximum. And you can already see, if you look at look at young baseball players, like kids who have subpar visual acuity start self-selecting out already in Little League. Um, and especially if they have subpar depth perception, they don't learn catching skills as quickly, so they just start to fall behind. And that, and that even continues, even at the major league level, average visual acuity, which is about 2012 for hitters, meaning they see from 20 feet away what I have to stand at 12 feet away to see, uh, is better than guys who are in the minors for a long time. You know, So clearly, they couldn't hit Jenny Finch, right? So it's clearly dependent on a learned skill. At the same time, um, once you learn those skills, there's certain... Uh, what I call physical hardware traits that that give you a better whole operating machine once you've gotten the software or the sport specific skills that you have to learn. I like that physical hardware, and I also like the idea that you mentioned here, and and I think this is in the book as well. Self selecting out, and this is what we're seeing. You know, David, uh, the uh, Canadian. Hockey AGM just uh, uh, finished up here a couple weeks ago, and they looked at the registration numbers across the country, and they're down a little bit, and everybody's panicking kind of, and they're trying to put a finger on a solution or a reason that you know numbers are down a little bit. It's and it's only three percent; it's not significant. The women's game actually is up, so which is which is intriguing. But um, you know, there's the idea of you know kids have a lot of different options now. Uh, there are massive conversations in the media about injuries and concussions, so kids may deviate or families may deviate away from hockey because of that. But I like this idea, and I think it's important for coaches and parents to understand this whole concept of self-selecting out. I really liked when you said that. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and I don't think it should always necessarily be looked at as only a bad thing, right? Like, obviously, we don't want sports participation to drop, um, but if it's, people finding a niche that fits them better. You know, like grit is kind of a buzzword now yeah. in, uh, in, in a lot of sport performance, desire or ability to, to persevere and overcome challenges. And I think we should add fit to that word. And, and luckily they rhyme because I think, um, you know, I've been writing about this lately. The sports science shows that at least through age 12, kids should have what's called a sampling period where they try a range of different sports. One, they gain a range of different skills, but also some of them find the activity that best fits both their physiology um, and their psychology. And so sometimes in, in some countries that have one sport that's so much more popular than all the others, you probably push some people toward that sport without a sampling period when they really could have more success in some other sport. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't think it's always bad. It just depends where those, where those kids are going. Yeah, and hopefully you're right, not away from sport, no question about it. We're talking with David Epstein, investigative reporter and author of The Sports Gene. The website is thesportsgene.com. You can check it out and also order the book there. Uh, fascinating read. Well, let's get into something really interesting. The next, There's a part of the book that, that comes shortly after the MLB Vision uh, discussion where you talk about a real cool heading that I thought, and it really caught my attention, and I, I once I started, I couldn't put this part of it down. Will women soon outrun men? And the reason men have nipples, I think that's how it goes in your book. Yeah. Um, but but this is a real interesting one for me because it sort of really strongly reflects, reflects on the, the sort of nurture side, the impact of environment on performance. And your perspective on why women are where they're at, I thought was a fascinating take because I hadn't thought of it before. Yeah, I mean, so some, one of the reasons I sort of investigated that was because there were some um, sort of strict nurturist, I guess, um, sports psychologists who felt that, you know, genes are meaningless. So the, the most basic question I could ask was then, well, why are 
why are male and female athletes separated, right? And so in that chapter, of course, I go through some of the differences, um, but it's, uh, for female athletes, I mean, one thing you see in the sports that are easy to quantify is their records are basically like stuck in the 1980s, which is kind of unfortunate um, because that was like an era of mega doping and it shows what, how powerful male hormones are basically on right. female yeah. editors. Um, and, and so it sort of spoiled the record hunt for a lot of women's sports, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that is a fascinating read. And yet, you know, we just had a discussion here last week, you know, of course, as, as the golf season is underway and the U.S. Open and some of the majors start uh, um, um, kicking off here. Oh, we were looking at the LPGA and the incredible fascination uh, that we have right now with the Korean golfers just dominating, dominating the the game. In 1997, there were no golfers from South Korea at all. By 2011, there were 43. And, uh, you know, they kind of nicknamed them the Soul Sisters because they were all coming out of this area where they're now producing these unbelievable female golfers that are, by the way, dominating the LPGA. I think it's a fascinating experiment in itself. Absolutely, no doubt about it. And I think um, golf is, you know, a sport that is not as physiologically limiting um, as a lot of other sports are. And so I think if if uh, a country can get, you know, a big pipeline for people um, into golf and, and excited about it and keep them healthy, I think that's the kind of thing that you're going to see. And I don't think any other country is doing that to the extent that Korea is. You know, maybe some others will, but most countries don't really have a big influx of youth golf. And Korea does, where they're, you know, using uh, more modern training methods and things like that. So I think, I think other places will catch up, but, um, you know, it takes time. Yeah. Hey, uh, David, we're talking with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. Hey, just before we go to a break here, i got to ask you about this, the Heritage, Heritage uh, Project. Um, health risk factors, um, um, training, and genetics. This is a pretty interesting part of the book for me. It, it really gets into the genetic side, and this is a touchy subject for all of us. But what we're learning about genes and gene mapping now could have a dark side as well, don't you think? No doubt about it. I mean, I, I, I think that I just got called and asked about the Uzbekistan's Olympic Committee is starting to, like, gene test kids, you know, because that study that you referred to shows that we can sort of um, predict some of the responsiveness to training of people in a certain trait, and it's totally has nothing to do with how good they are to begin with, but uh, how well they will adapt to the training is, is um, based very much on their genes. And, you know... So how is that going to be used? And I think we really need to be having these discussions like yesterday because uh, it's, it's powerful technology and it's going, to, it's going to become more powerful and cheaper. And I think, you know, are we going to use those for good or are we going to use them to screen kids and try to put them in boxes and all that kind of stuff? So I hope we don't diminish the good of sports by getting too crazy about this stuff. Yeah, and I think you're right. It could get very touch and go. And I can see this really, David, um, working its way very quickly into the professional ranks. You know, look, we just had sort of the the NFL combines, NHL combines just went down, the MLB draft. And if there was ever one area that I'm scared that the gene testing falls into, this is the one because it's going to really change the landscape and not for the better, I don't think. I mean, I... There's already there's some protection from employers ordering you to have genetic tests, but who yeah. knows where that's really going to go? And there are already tests that can show uh, some elevated risk for injury, like um, uh, you know tearing your ACL, yes, something exactly. like that. And we know very well that there's a gene that shows some people have diminished ability to recover from a concussion, right? Like, can you imagine if NFL teams figured out that somebody has that before the draft? Like, 
that's that could be dangerous information. I think we need to really, really get busy making um, rigorous regulations about genetic privacy. We're talking with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, a fascinating read for everybody. We just finished a conversation on um, the idea of gene testing. And let's continue that discussion, David, with the idea of gene expression, because you're right, you know, there are polymorphisms on the genetic um, uh, a chain that we've, we've identified as, you know, sort of markers for performance or potential injury. And, you know, this whole idea of will that actually come true or not, that might be a little questionable when we talk about gene expression and how these genes might be expressed through experience, time, and environment as well. So it is not, it is not as cut and dry as every, everybody might seem, don't you think? That's absolutely the case. No, every, I would say everything in genetics at this point is wherever it could be more complicated or less cut and dry, basically it is. Um, you know, the way that genes interact with one another, the way that um, our experiences, um, you know, change our gene expression, turning our genes up or down. I mean, some of the stuff's just basic. Like, so I write about a, protein, a gene called the myostatin gene in the book, which, um, and the character I write about is this one I call super baby, where myostatin is basically a protein that tells muscles to stop growing. It's like a muscle stop sign. And this baby has gene mutations that cause him to have none of it, so his muscles are like explosive growth. And his, his mother had one copy of that same gene, and she was a pro sprinter, you know. But um, uh, my, even normally, normal people, if they start a weight training program, their myostatin gene will turn down its activity. So it says, all right, something's going on here. Uh, we're, we're living in a new environment. Like, let's turn down our activity to let the muscles grow. So there's so many interactions, and we're just sort of, beginning to learn how all those things work. Yeah, and it's fascinating, and I agree. And this kind of go, takes me back to the idea, you know, you in, in that section of the book, you also talk about, you know, the breeding of sled dogs, and you talk about the breeding of bulls and animals, and of course, just coming off the triple crown here, I'm thinking about, you know, how they've for years and years sort of bred horses for performance. I think we're seeing that in the human race already. We know it exists for sure, but this is sort of a, a real basic way of sort of playing with the genes to match them up to come up with an end result that might equal performance. That's right. I mean, if we, when you talk about horses, you know, they, they, they've been bred so well that actually they're like bumping up against their physiological capacity now. So thoroughbreds aren't getting faster anymore. They, they actually run so fast. They, they have like mini hemorrhaging from their lungs right. um, when they're sprinting. So, so they've, they've been bred so well for what they do that they are really like hitting a physiological wall where their physiology, physiology would have to train drastically um, to allow them to do what they do. And obviously we don't see that kind of breeding um, in in humans, it's, it, usually, except for like Yao Ming, who's actually several several generations of his ancestors were put together by Chinese Basketball Federation. Um, but usually you don't see that. But I do wonder now that there's so many more opportunities for professional female athletes, and sometimes professional female athletes and professional male athletes get married and have kids, and that wasn't something that you saw in previous generations because we didn't really know who the good female athletes were. I'm kind of curious what the next generation will look like. Yeah, it is very interesting. We're talking with David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. Well, let's talk about this. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty and, and kind of the fun stuff. Um, the website is thesportsgene.com, and just recently you were invited to speak for a TED Talk, which is fantastic, by the way. The TED Talk is, Are Athletes Really Getting Faster, Better, and Stronger? A lot of this conversation came out of your book. But I thought this was a real great perspective on, you know, really what's going on out there. You know, technology is playing such a massive role in our ability to perform in just about every facet of life, and it's really sort of outlined here clearly in the world of sports. 
Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I wanted to, the question they asked me to address was, well, why are athletes getting so much better faster than their genes could have changed? And I make one argument I make is that the genes in the athletic population have changed, but also the difference is really exaggerated by technology. And that, that's the case for everything in life, right? Like everything we do now, we're better at because of technology. But I don't think people usually think about it in the context of sports. That's why I sort of opened with that anecdote where I talk about, you know, Jesse Owens, if you just compare him to Usain Bolt, uh, his time, he would have been last place against Usain Bolt at the World Championships. But when you correct for the track surface that those guys were running on, he would have been he would have been second place. Jesse Owens would have been. He would have been within one stride of Usain Bolt because he was basically Owens was running on cinders. It's kind of like dirt. He had to start from holes that he dug with a gardening trowel, <laughs> whereas Usain Bolt's running down a specially fabricated synthetic carpet out of blocks. You know, and so that's just one example. But technology has totally transformed the face of performance and. Uh, we often don't think about how big of a difference that is when we compare athletes to, to athletes of the past. Right, and one of the powerful uh, topics you mentioned there was the four-minute mile. And we've talked about this in our show before previously, but you really, really presented it well when you talked about, okay, well, you know, Roger Bannister in 1954 was the first man to break the four-minute mile. And, you know, since then, well, you know, there's been this many guys. But if we correct for technology and, and all those variables in there, there's really only this many guys that have actually truly, yeah. you know, done done the job. And I think that's a real interesting take. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, it's about 1,314 guys who've run under the four minute mile since Sir Roger did in 1954. But, you know, I, and I would say I made a very conservative, uh, when I asked, um, biomechanics experts to tell me, you know, what the difference is between running on cinders like Sir Roger did in today's synthetic tracks, I took the, the smallest conversion they gave me. And, and even so you, you get rid of more than half of the guys who have ever run under four minutes in the mile. If they had to run on the same track as Sir Roger did, they wouldn't be sub-four-minute milers. And that was with a conservative conversion. If I had gone with some of the outside estimates of what scientists gave me, um, it would have eliminated almost everybody. And, you know, so there are, it, it wouldn't have eliminated everybody. There still would have been people. There still would have been a couple people every year. And that's because there are more, many more people training. The sport has opened up to the world, and they're training much more intelligently than they did in the past. No doubt about it. But it's very much exaggerated by changes in technology like track surfaces. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And that's so fascinating, especially for me, because that's the world I live in. You know, everybody talks about these athletes in the NFL and hockey and baseball, bigger, faster, stronger. And yeah, you know, training has come a long ways. Our nutrition and nutrient timing and, you know, all these, you know, the, the, the focus on sleep and sleep cycles, that's all really, really good, but there really hasn't been a big change and there's no secret formulas. The one thing that has changed though, that I really appreciate you talking about was your idea of the big bang of body types, which is fantastic title, by the way, because if anything is in sport is true, this is it. This is one of the big game changers right along with technology. This is just sort of like what we talked about you know, when we mentioned this sort of self-selecting out, well, this is sort of self-selecting into an avenue where you could be successful. Wouldn't you agree? I thought it's a great conversation. Exactly. And I, and I should give credit for that name, Big Bang of Body Types, to Kevin Norton and Tim Old, the Australian scientists who coined it. But um, what they found was that, you know, when you looked at athletes from the first half of the 20th century, their body types were incredibly similar because there was this idea at the time that the average body type was the best for every sport. So, um, you know, like I said in the talk, the, at that time in, in the 1920s, the average elite high jumper and shot putter were the same exact size. Fast forward to now, the average elite shot putter is two and a half inches taller and 130 pounds heavier. And this has happened throughout sports where athletes' bodies have gotten much more specific to the task they do. It's been a form of artificial selection 
where we've realized that specialized bodies, so the big athletes have gotten bigger, small athletes have gotten smaller, elite female gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three on average to four foot nine on average over 30 years. Um, the proportion of men in the NBA who are at least seven feet tall more than doubled um, in the mid-80s when the sport went global. Uh, and so we now have much less average people. We now have bodies that fit uh, fit in specific sports as opposed to just this sort of average body type that can do a little bit of everything but nothing really well. And so the gene pool of humanity may not have changed, but the gene pool within competitive sports most certainly changed. Yeah, and do you think that's a good thing, David? Because, I mean, let's think about it. You have all these kids trying to find their way, and we want them to be active in sports. You know, we don't want to get them pigeonholed, and that's why I like what you said. You know, up to the age 12, there should be a sampling period of a multitude of sports just so kids can experiment and find out what they're going to be good at, and then boom, let them just go and see where it might take them for crying out loud. I really like this whole idea. And I think, I think it's one of the good things that's come out of the sporting system. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I visited the Australian Institute of Sport, where we don't have anything like the Australian Institute of Sport um, in the U.S. And and actually Canada has something kind of closer to it. But anyway, I think the Australian Institute of Sport is the most sort of centralized sports science institute. And they actually, when they were awarded the Olympics, they had the Olympics in 2000 in Australia, they set up like a way to have a sampling period for adult athletes where they'd take people that were really good in the national program but maybe not quite at the top and looked at their physiology and their psychology and said, you know what, you're good in this sport, but you might be great in this other one. And so they started this program of shifting athletes around, and they had massive success with it. And they ended up at those Olympics winning 10 times more medals per capita than the United States, partly because they, they brought the sampling period back for adults. And I'm not sure, you know, whether that's a smart thing for every country to do, but it sure worked out for them. And that, that, that go around. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. And I wouldn't mind seeing more of this, to tell you the truth, even at the professional levels. Because, you know, we see so many guys. Well, let's, let's talk about this. You know, we have this whole idea of specialization now. Which, by the way, we're talking with David Epstein, author of The, uh, the Sports Gene. Um, you know, we have this whole epidemic, if you want to call it, of specialization early. And it's devastating to a lot of kids. And, you know, the dropout rates, the injury rates, the burnout rates in 10, 11, 12-year-olds is higher than it's ever been in the history of sport, I believe. Um, But I would really like to see this sort of become commonplace. Man, we would have way, way more success and higher retention in sport as well, I believe. Yeah, and there's some... And, and, and kids don't even have to play less sports. It's actually, so there was just this study done at Loyola University in Chicago tracking like about 1,200 kids over three years, and there was a protective effect of playing multiple sports. It didn't mean that the kid had to play less sports or be less physically active overall. In, in fact, in some cases, those kids were more active overall. They just weren't doing the same exact thing over and over and over and over for all those hours they were active. And, and it's, I mean, it's, gotten crazy, you know, with like travel and private coaching for six-year-olds. So <laughs> in that study, income showed up as a positive predictor of a kid, the income of his family as a positive predictor of a kid having a serious overuse injury, like a stress fracture in his back or a torn ligament in his elbow, because only those families could afford the year-round travel and private coaching that, that specialization requires. So, um, you know, it's, 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 not good for health, and I think there's a building body of scientific evidence showing that it's not optimal for skill development either until sort of maybe the mid-teen years when you can specialize more. 
Right. Well, and it's been interesting here in Canada, of course. We've been sort of battling with this hockey thing up here. And um, one of the NHL coaches came out not too long ago on our radio station here in Edmonton. And he was just sort of saying that they had a, a, a mini camp for their, their prospects coming up. And they went out into a field and they were chucking the football around. And he was flabbergasted at how many of these talented young men couldn't throw a football. He said the, the athletic potential of future athletes is in jeopardy and it's getting serious. And I thought that was a great statement from a highly, highly respected coach. That's really interesting. And, and, and while you're mentioning hockey and we're talking about specialization, I should make the point. I, I once wrote um, an article about the, the epidemic of torn labrums in butterfly-style goaltenders. And it's not just goaltenders. They just have it at a higher rate. But one of the guys I've kept in touch with from that was Mark Philippon, who um, is a surgeon at the Stedman Clinic and basically operates on the hip of any NHL player, pretty much, who, right. who tears their labrum. And he was telling me that now because kids are starting to learn butterfly when they're like seven or whatever, um, he saw a 25-year-old who needed a hip replacement. I mean, so you're seeing young guys with surgeries that their grandparents should be having because they're over-specializing in an early age. Patrick Wall wasn't doing it at that age, and uh, he was the best, probably the best butterfly ever. So um, it doesn't seem like it's necessary, and it can definitely be harmful, especially for the developing hip joint. Yeah, we're talking with David Epstein, investigative reporter, um, writes for a number of publications, including Sports Illustrated, and author of our topic today, the book, The Sports Gene. Um, David, one other thing I just want to talk to you about before we let you go, of course, uh, my background being deeply seated in baseball, um, there is a big issue in baseball, you know, talking about these overuse injuries, and you're probably very, very familiar with it right now, is the idea of all these surgeries, especially the Tommy John surgeries right now for young athletes. The MLB draft just went underway, and there was a, a good, good number of of young players who had already had Tommy John surgeries in their high school years. But in May and, um, uh, in May and April of this year, there had been 28 professional pitchers who had undergone Tommy John surgery and they're calling it an epidemic. And one report out there is referring it to it as a, as a, as a legitimate form of child abuse. That's how far it's getting. It's something to be very concerned about, but I think this might reflect, you know, this whole idea of overuse and specificity in sports in general, just looking at baseball. However, I, I agree with you completely. I did, this is nothing that's isolated to baseball or anything like that. I think one thing that youth baseball could do, I was actually just talking to Struan Coleman, who is um, the surgeon for the Mets, about yes. this the other day. And uh, he is a big advocate of shrinking the baseball a little bit for youth baseball because we do that in most sports. We shrink the ball. Uh, for, we do that in football. We do that um, in basketball. We shrink the ball for kids. And he thinks that... Um, you know, because kids have small hands and small fingers, they wouldn't have to torque their elbow as much if we made the ball a little bit smaller so it fit in their hand. Because this loading on the elbow ligament is it's it's an issue of lifetime exposure, right? It's not because of what these pitchers are doing only in the pros. It's because of the lifetime of use on that ligament. And so I, I think that's really something we should think about because we do it in other sports, and it certainly doesn't hinder athletes' skill development in basketball. I don't think it would in baseball either. It might even enhance it because, you know, the kids might have a little more success. They might get a little more interested in the game, and then we might have a little more retention. And here's one thing we do know about athlete performance. The number one reason that athletes don't reach their potential, you know, for the ones that go on to higher levels of the game is because of injuries. So any way we could possibly avoid it and create a safer environment, I'm in 100%. Uh, David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, Thank you so much for your time today. Um, if I were to ask you right now, what are you working on? What can we expect next out of the coffers of David Epstein? Oh, that's a good question. I'm working on uh, one, one investigative story, I guess, that I 
that I probably shouldn't talk about yet at this point, but I'm, I'm sort of reloading because I would like to dive into another big, big project. I think I've sort of done what I want to do for now on genes, and I would like to look at um, kind of team behaviors that, that cultivate success. That's something I'm really interested in. I was reading a study about how uh, about a rowing team, and when you add members to a rower, like every person starts pulling harder, it's, and they don't even know it, it's unconscious, they do better just because they have teammates, until you add a sixth person, in which case they all start going backward, all unconsciously. I just thought that was really fascinating. There's like an ideal number of people to get the best out of every person in a certain task, and I'm fascinated by research like that and would love to kind of dive into work like that um, to understand sort of how we can uh, get the best of ourselves. Yeah, and the great stuff about that, David, though, I think that stuff goes well beyond sport, don't you think? Sport just might be the measurable uh, environment that we use to get these examples out of there. But there are implications here in life in general, certainly in business, for crying out loud, music, art, and everything else, don't you think? So, I mean, so much. I mean, absolutely. When, like in the book, I was just I was just thinking about Netherlands soccer today because they just beat Spain in the World Cup. Yeah. And I write about their development pipeline. And they identify kids who have self-regulatory behavior, which basically amounts to becoming the orchestrators of their own development. They look like annoying 12-year-olds because they're always asking the coach, like, why am I doing this? I've already mastered this. What, what, what is this supposed to be working on? But that's actually them taking accountability for their own training. And having read through all those studies when I was writing about it, you know, I try to apply that stuff to my own work. Um, and, and my own improvement at writing. So, absolutely. Ha, practicing what we preach. <laughs> Easier said than done sometimes. David, listen, really appreciate your time today. Can't wait to talk to you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Such a great conversation. I've listened back to this one a couple of times as well, and I always pick up something new, or at the very least, it always gets me thinking about something I might not have focused on in the last little while. And that's what the Crush Performance Podcast is all about. Getting us all thinking about things we may not have thought about before in a quest to expand our knowledge so you can improve your performance. And in the big picture, so we can all push human performance to new heights. And it's conversations like this that do exactly that. Well... Next week, the final episode of our three-part Looking Back series, and it is a very, very interesting episode. When I was with Major League Baseball, every spring training, MLB security would team up with experts to deliver important messages to the players and staff. It usually revolved around player safety or game integrity. And this is how I met former mob boss Michael Franzese. He was touring around talking to each organization about corruption in sport and how the mob and other underworld organizations deliberately target players, referees and umpires, and game officials, as well as staff. And frankly, as a farm boy from central Alberta, it was scary as hell to hear how it actually all goes down. Next week, we go back to our conversation with Michael as he not only talks about how they infiltrated sport to control game outcomes and make money, but he shares how the mafia operates and why they're so good at what they do, generating loyalty, fear, and loads of money. Michael now spends his time helping as many people as he possibly can and raising awareness through his books, movies, and presentations. I can't get enough of this conversation and I can't wait to share it with you once again. You need to look everywhere you possibly can to find any information, strategies, or tactics that in the end will help you think like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershell. 
The Crush Performance Podcast is recorded right here in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. Website and educational material is directed by Debbie Kershell. The music, graphics, and video design by Noah Lexen at Nolexen Visual and Sound. And this is season 19 of Crush Performance. You can get all of our archives and you can subscribe to the show and get all of the performance links at jeffkershell.com. And follow me on social media to search out Crush Performance. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.